Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. The court is back at it this week, hearing oral arguments and issuing opinions, and we'll get into all of that next week with a brand new episode. But for this week, we wanted to replay one of our favorite interviews with Judge Paul Kelly. So stay tuned for GC's interview with Judge Kelly right after this. So what is going on with Ukraine? What is this deal with the border? How do you feel about school choice? These are the questions that come up to conservatives sitting at parties, at dinner, at family reunions. What do you say when these questions come up? I'm Mark Guiney, the host of the podcast for you, Heritage Explains, brought to you by all of your friends here at the Heritage Foundation. Through the creative use of stories, the knowledge of our super passionate experts, we bring you the most important policy issues of the day and break them down in a way that is understandable. So check out Heritage Explains wherever you get your podcasts. We are joined today by Senior Judge Paul J. Kelly Jr. of the 10th Circuit. Judge, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So, Judge, did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? You know, I never really gave it a whole lot of thought. I did follow my father around, who was a lawyer uh, and subsequently a judge. I followed him around when he was an attorney. Uh, I really wanted to be a tugboat captain. (laughs) I worked on the commercial fishing boats on on the East Coast, and uh, I thought that would be really a fun way to make a living. But I I decided when I first got into college that I really wanted to go into law. While you were, uh, so you went to Fordham Law School, and while you were there, you started working at one of New York's big white shoe firms. What was that like? Oh, it was it was really great. I was there for a couple of years, uh, as a, and I was a, you know a law clerk, and uh, I just learned so much from them and and from you know how to how to research and how to you know file stuff, and it was just a great experience. Uh, and there were there were th- three of us that that were there for a, a period of time, and I think I was probably one of the longest law clerks there. Uh, and I left shortly after graduation. Why did you leave? Well, I didn't want I to be real honest. I I wanted to get out from under my father's shadow. Uh, at that time, he was the administrative judge of the New York Supreme Court out in uh, Nassau County, uh, and. I was assigned to work on a uranium case that was pending in New Mexico and met the attorneys from that firm uh, and asked them as sort of a lighthearted question, do you need the young lawyers out in New Mexico? Uh, And the furthest west I'd ever been was South Bend, Indiana. (laughs) Uh, And they said, yeah, if you come out, we'll pay your way and we'd love to interview you. And I I went out. My wife and I had just had our first child, uh, and I went out and called her up and said, "You're going to love it out here. The people are friendly, and the weather's beautiful, and uh, the country's very different from from Long Island." Uh, and we we came out, and I've never looked back since. 
What is it about New Mexico besides the weather that drew you there? Well, just the the uh, opportunity uh, to to just be out on my own and to to really uh, uh, build a career for myself. Uh, as I said, I wanted to get out from under my dad's shadow. And the the place, I mean, we had an apartment in New York that you could have put in a closet in our <laughs> place in, in Roswell. The work out here was just exciting, and it was just a, a, a great change. What was it like going from a firm, you know, a, a big white shoe firm in New York to your small firm where you had to build your own practice from scratch? Well, you know, I didn't have to build my own practice. That was the great thing about it. The Hinkel firm. Uh, goes back to the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, uh, and and they have been they were the third largest firm in New Mexico with with nine lawyers back in those days. That was nineteen sixty seven. When I left the firm in in nineteen ninety two, we had a hundred lawyers in six cities in two states. Wow! And I I was able to to uh, plug into the oil and gas practice. Uh, I did a lot of public utility litigation, uh, including a number of uh, federal energy regulatory commission cases. Uh, And on top of that, uh, there was no public defender uh, department in New Mexico back at that time. Uh, And so we had a lot of pro bono uh, criminal work that got handed down from the senior to the junior. And I was the junior and did all the criminal pro bono work uh, in the first several years uh, in practice. Uh, Tell me about that pro bono work. Well, the the local district judge would would pick up the phone and call you and say, uh, Paul, I've got a burglary case here and uh, it's going to go to trial in about 10 days. And I'd like you to be the the defendant's attorney. (laughs) Good good heavens. (laughs) Yeah, and you would just take a yellow pad and stick a piece of carbon paper behind it and go out and start talking to the witnesses uh, and then go to trial. You you know, prepare a set of uh, uh, jury instructions. Uh, and I say there was no public defender department, and I was fortunate to uh, have been one of the three lawyers chosen by the governor to put together a statewide public defender department mm. uh, in, in the late in the late eighties, uh, and and we set up the public defender department, and uh, it's going to this this day, which it covers the entire state. Now, you developed for yourself a reputation as a very successful trial lawyer, and rumor has it that you developed something of a catchphrase for when people asked you if you had won. <laughs> what was Tell that catchphrase? I, <laughs> I don't remember when I first said it, but <laughs> uh, when I came back into the office after a trial, uh, somebody would always say, how'd you do? And I'd say, does a cat have a tail? Because uh, I, I had won the case. Uh, and and I just love trying cases. And it was just a great, a, just a great experience. What was your most memorable trial or your proudest win? You know, we probably the, the greatest series of trials, uh, we did the White Sands Missile Range uh, condemnation cases by the government. Uh, 
they first condemned the lease and then they condemned the fee after the lease condemnation was completed. Uh, and we represented 56 ranches in that in that case, and we prevailed on all of them. Uh, and I guess that was probably my most uh, money worthwhile case. But mm-hmm. my my most memorable trial was a pro bono criminal case, a drug case brought against an undercover agent uh, by the local district attorney, uh, and he had been indicted as a result of the people he had turned uh, or had caught, and the DA tried him, and I tried the case right before the primary election uh, and won the case, and the DA lost his primary election. Wow. And I was very proud of that one. (laughs) (laughs) While you were in private practice, you ran for a seat and won a seat in the New Mexico legislature. How did you manage a campaign and then serving as a state representative along with your trial practice? Well, it was it was hard, but my my other motto always was that's why God made nights. <laughs> and I uh, campaigned. I was I was uh, in a district that was two to one in the opposite party, uh, for as far as registrations were mm. concerned. And I began campaigning in in at four o'clock in the afternoon on June twenty seventh. And the reason I remember that is because it was my anniversary and my wife was not terribly <laughs> pleased with that with that setup. Uh, and to make a long story short, we, we prevailed uh, handily. And then I ran without opposition the next hmm. the next go around. And finally, my firm told me that I had helped the people all they could stand being helped. And <laughs> they they said to me, please don't run again. And I didn't. <laughs> and then they sent then they sent me to Santa Fe uh, after I concluded my legislative work uh, to open an office for the firm. Mm. Uh, and I did that. And that's how I got up to Santa Fe. Uh, and then I was appointed to the Court of Appeals uh, from, from Santa Fe. Did your father's service as a judge uh, affect your decision to become one yourself? You know, I, if, I'm sure it probably did subconsciously. Uh, I don't really have any recollection saying I want to be just like Dad. Uh, I know that shortly after I became a judge and, and uh, did, you know, did my first opinion, I sent it down to him to look at. Hmm. And he called me back up and he said, you know, I don't agree with this. <laughs> and I said, well, I've got two people that already agreed and all I need is two <laughs> out of the three. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think I was motivated by the fact that he was in the in the courts, mm. and I initially wanted to be a trial judge, mm. uh, but it didn't work out. Uh, and instead of being a trial judge, I became a court of appeals judge. Although I gather that you sat by designation as a trial judge as well, and you maintain uh, an active. I docket. still do. Mm. Right, I still do. Why? Uh, how did you manage the dual caseload? Well, it's it just one thing at a time, and and uh, like I start a trial on the coming up on the fourteenth of March, mm-hmm. and I'm going to try it for a week, and then starting the twenty first of, of March, I got to I have to go to Denver uh, to sit on our appellate, uh, you know, case. 
uh, and I'll be back and pick up that case if and when we we uh, if we haven't finished it by the end of the week. Wow! Uh, and I just take them one at a time. I've got four great law clerks, uh, and I I assign everything in seriatim, so one clerk doesn't get stuck with all the the you know one type of case. Mm-hmm. And we just balance things out, and, and uh, everybody works hard. And when we get down near the near the day of a trial, we just, you know, don't worry about how late you have to stay. Uh, but we just we just balance it out. Well, you have maintained incredible speed and quality. Your opinions consistently come out w- within two months, uh, or you circulate a draft within two months of oral argument. You have earned a spot among the top three most cited judges in the country, along with Seventh Circuit judges Richard Posner and Frank Easterbrook, according to a 2015 study. So what is the secret to your success? Well, I guess you have to say it's, it's just uh, one luck that we get cases that when they're done and we, and we circulate them, they become precedential. Uh, and secondly, we have a 10-day a rule in my chambers, uh, where if we get a case in in September, it's got to be out of our chambers by the next term of court. Uh, and when we get a case in from another judge to review, uh, we have to have it done within 10 days. So it, nothing festers. And I can't really, I, I was very surprised when I, when I learned that I had been uh, among the top three most cited judges, and I only found it out by uh, walking into a uh, a meeting of, of our circuit, and one of the other judges said, how does it feel to be one of the top three cited judges? And I said, oh, I don't know. He said, well, you are, and a study just came out to show it, uh, and I, I was totally dumbfounded by it. You mentioned your four law clerks. Um, have you formed any traditions with them? Well, in the sense that that uh, uh, I have one permanent law clerk who's been with me for thirty years, uh, and we have uh, weekly lunches uh, together uh, out at some a different restaurant in Santa Fe every week, uh, and we take a hike. Uh, we've traditionally done that at the, when the Aspens change, and then we have a a reunion every five we have had a reunion uh, every five years uh, and I keep in touch with my law clerks and when I when I sit for instance uh, in in California with the Ninth Circuit uh, or when we're in Denver uh, or New York uh, I put the word out that I'm coming into town and we always we all get together for a dinner in in a restaurant so we all we keep in touch pretty pretty well. And, and, uh, I think they enjoy it. I certainly enjoy it. Uh, my clerks are the only people that I can really sit down and talk to, uh, under the you know, rules that, that, that guide federal judges. Mm. And it's, it's, I don't know if those are traditions, but that's, that's how we do it. Now, over your many years on the bench, you've issued opinions in some really high profile cases. Can you talk about some of your most memorable, your favorite cases to have worked on? Sure. Uh, well, you know, the, the Oklahoma City bombing case always stands out. 
Uh, and what was interesting about that case was that, and we've never done it before, and I've never been in, you know, done it since, is the panel sat down before the argument and sent the attorneys a list of the areas that we were concerned about and hoped that they would, they would uh, direct their briefing to those areas, or at least their arguments. Uh, and it was interesting that none of them did. Not <laughs> one of the arguments we wanted to hear uh, were, were, were responded to. Uh, the gay marriage case was, uh, I dissented in that case, but uh, obviously I was, I was on the short end of that. Uh, the Florida versus Georgia water case that the Supreme Court appointed mm-hmm. me as the special master was a fascinating case. And that, that was probably one of the highlights uh, of my career. Uh, and it, it went back, my, my work went back to the Supreme Court and they affirmed it last year, nine to nothing. So I was pleased with that. One case that I would love to try again was U.S. versus Singleton. Uh, and that case involved a lawyer in Kansas who argued but to the court and said, there's something wrong when a, when a prosecutor can offer a defendant, I mean a witness, uh, some kind of a break if he'll come in and testify against the defendant. And I was looking in the statutes, and, and there's a bribery statute, and it said you can't give anything of value for a witness's testimony. And I wrote that case uh, with that in mind, and the other two judges on the panel joined it. And the hue and cry <laughs> went from one coast to the other, <laughs> that we were trying to say all prosecutors were criminals, and uh, in any event, without any motion or anything, my, my own circuit pulled that case back in uh, and in an order and judgment, you know, just affirmed the, the conviction of the defendant. Mm, and to this day, I think I was right. Uh, and as an old judge from Roswell that was one of the mentors of the bar told us, they may reverse me, but they don't change my mind. <laughs> now, speaking of um, being a mentor to the bar, you are and have been for a long time uh, the leader of the local chapter of the American Inns of Court. Am I right about that? Yes, that's correct. What do you do in that capacity? Well, we we put we put it together, and uh, it's a the purpose is to encourage civility as well as uh, give give lawyers the continuing education opportunities. Uh, and at least in New Mexico, there had not been one. Uh, and I sat down with two or three of the more senior lawyers. This is back in like 1993. Uh, and we formed it, and then we invited various uh, experienced, not-so-experienced, brand-new lawyers to join it. And every month from, from September through May, uh, a different group will present a program for the rest of the, of the group. Uh, and it's been very successful. And I think it has really helped because if you break bread, if you will, with the fellow who's going to try to, you know, beat you into the ground, uh, that it makes for a much, much more camaraderie uh, uh, environment. Uh, and and 
it, that it, it's it's just been really fun. I met, they also uh, I was nominated by the Anna Court and received the Professionalism Award for the Tenth Circuit uh, several years ago, uh, which is presented in the U.S. Supreme Court chambers, which was an exciting event. Uh, and it's it's uh, it goes only because the lawyers are interested and and want to do it. Now, Judge, if I can change uh, subjects for a moment, I have heard that you keep a large engraved metal fire axe in your chambers. Can you tell me the story behind that? Well, uh, I was a fireman and an emergency medical technician uh, for the last, uh, well, I've been out of it now about five, four years uh, in Santa Fe County. Uh, And and I served in various capacities, uh, including as assistant chief and chief of the fire department in the Hondo uh, fire district. And when I stepped down uh, and I, as chief, I had to because the county commission has to approve who the chief is of each, each uh, fire district. And that would make it political and a federal judge cannot be involved in politics. Mm. So I stepped down and the department presented me with a, a gold, it's not real gold, I'm sure it's a, you know, <laughs> painted gold, uh, fire axe, and I have it hanging on my wall uh, in my chambers, and people mm-hmm. come in and say, why is that there? And I, I tell them my story. I also have my uh, helmet that I wore for 32 years sitting on my shelf uh, here, uh, and it was a big part of my life, principally because Again, as a as a federal judge, your your people you can talk to and just you know just be around uh, become very limited. Mm. Uh, and the firemen, they're from all different walks of life. None of them are lawyers, uh, and and uh, it just was a, a, a just a really fun fun situation. And we ran about 550 calls every year. And if I was in town and not in court, when my pager went off, I would go. Uh, and finally, my wife said I was getting too old and I was going to hurt somebody. <laughs> so I retired. So besides the inns of court being a volunteer fireman, uh, you and your wife, Ruth, remain very active in the Santa Fe community. What other things are you involved in? Well, just really, it's rotary uh and and our, our local church uh, and is and she is involved. She's been involved in. Uh, she worked for the governor of New Mexico for eight years, uh, director of boards and commissions, and uh, knew everybody in Santa Fe. But uh, I was unable to accompany her to any of those uh, functions, and and so we've sort of both slowed down. We just recently moved. Uh, into into town from out in the country where we did live, uh, and so we just have the the end of court rotary, uh, and I'm still on the board of directors for the fire department, mm. uh, but it doesn't take much much time. It sounds to me like you've taken very seriously the judicial ethics rules. Have you found them constraining? Worth it? Uh, what do you think? No. About them? Well, I have not found them constraining at all, but you have to know them. And I served on the uh, uh, National Committee uh, in the, of the Federal Judiciary and the Ethics Committee. Uh, 
uh, and and it all makes sense. You know, you can't go to a fundraiser, you can't raise money. In fact, that might be one of the benefits of the job. <laughs> you can't raise, you can't give money, you can't raise money uh, for any political activity. And it makes it makes good sense. And I was very disappointed uh, to learn that that a number of uh, uh, colleagues across the country had just failed to see what they had. And now you can see every day in the Wall Street Journal is mm-hmm. another motion being made to vacate somebody's somebody's uh, judgment because they turned out their wife or their uncle or somebody owned stock of the one of the parties. Uh, and I think that if everybody reads those uh, canons and and follows them, uh, they should not be very constraining. Now you cannot hold individual stock. And sit on a case, even if you have just one share. So we don't have any common stocks. It all goes into a mutual fund, which is is protected from that from that problem because we don't have any any choice as to what they invest in. I see. Uh, but I don't find them constraining to me at all. Now shifting gears, I have a question that comes to me from one of your former clerks. And I'm told, <laughs> I have to ask you about the time that you tried to visit a military academy in your boat. What is the story there? Well, my wife and I lived on a boat and up until two years ago in the summertime. Uh, we kept it out on Long Island, and it was a, a 48-foot trawler. Uh, and we were going to take a trip up the Hudson River. Uh, and one of my colleagues uh, was, a, was acquainted with the protocol officer of West Point. So we headed up, we went all the way in from the end of Long Island into New York, up the Hudson River, mm-hmm. uh, and and got up to where West Point was and got on the radio and said, uh, this is uh, Mastiempo, which is the name of the boat, and we're coming into your dock. And they came back and said, well, what makes you think you can come into our dock? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I'm a United States circuit judge. And they said, oh, you can come into our dock. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it had been cleared, but they didn't know that with the protocol officer. And we, we pulled in there and, and uh, uh, just went all over the campus. And after we had a good good visit, we got in the boat, headed further up the Hudson River. Uh, and we, we just enjoyed that boat. And I could set up my chambers. Uh, on the back deck, so I had huh. my my uh, uh, iPhone and my computer, and uh, everything is now on you know electronic. Uh, and we, I could make in contact with my chambers, and it was just a great way to spend the half the summer. <laughs> How many other federal judges have ever set up their chambers on uh, on a boat? <laughs> Probably not many. Well, there was one other, and. He is passed away now from the, he was on the second circuit. Uh, and he and I are, we wanted to go uh, in one of our boats, either his or mine, up to the first circuit, which is right on the river. And we wanted to dock at the, they have a dock right there. And in our robes, we wanted to get off and go up and sit <laughs> on, a, on a case there. But unfortunately, uh, he passed away before oh, we were sorry. able to do that. 
Well, Judge, it's been such a pleasure to have you on, and I have one final question for you, uh, and it is this. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, that's a hard, hard question. Uh, I think I would, I would enjoy uh, a conversation with Judge Scalia, uh, who was also from Long Island, uh, and, and we would discuss uh, fishing, and hunting, and the opera, uh, and more importantly, I would at least try to discuss the need for common sense decisions uh, that were not tied to super technical uh, terms. Uh, and and I I don't know that it would get me anywhere, but mm-hmm. that's what I'd like to that's what I'd like to do. Well, Judge, thank you again so much for joining us. Well, it was been my pleasure. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to this special rehearing episode of SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at SCOTUS 101, and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.